Simple Beep, Episode 70, Airport. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And it's been a couple extra weeks since our last episode, but we are back. Um, we've just had a little bit of personal travel and things over the past few weeks, so but we're back on our sort of monthly schedule. And uh, I guess we don't really talk about our personal lives too much on this show, but uh, part of the reason that I was traveling was that I was just wrapping up my now former job. Uh, so just like tiny little personal plug here. Uh, I used to be based in Michigan, but now I'm in New York City, and I'm looking for product management jobs here. So if you know of a cool opportunity here in New York City, if uh, you want to get in touch and send that my way, that would be uh, really appreciated. Especially if it uh, if, if you think that it meshes well with the uh, particular brand of nerdery that I uh, show off on this show and elsewhere uh, on the internet. Uh, I'll put a link to my uh, individual website, or you can just find me on Twitter. But in the meantime, congratulations on uh, what's hopefully a brief stretch of fun employment. Yes, but that means that we're recording this podcast right here, right now. <laughs> so that's enough about me. Let's move on to a little bit of follow-up. For the first item, um, Dave Weiner, who you may know as one of the creators of RSS or scripting.com, recently posted a retrospective of the programming language Frontier that he created 30 years ago, and it gained some traction all the way to the developer of PCALC, James Thompson, who tweeted that Douglas Adams once asked him to add support for the Frontier language to another one of his apps, DragThing. So we wanted to include that in our follow-up, mostly because of our episode 42 on Douglas Adams and his involvement with the classic Mac and the Mac community. Yeah, that's that's such a cool little piece, little tidbit of Apple history that came out as part of that. I think I also saw some of that coverage uh, linked on Darren Fireball. So a uh, lot of chatter about Frontier, uh, a piece of Mac software that I'm not super familiar with, but maybe we'll have to uh, put that on our future topic list as well to uh, do a do a deep dive there. I think that's our only episode-related follow-up. Like you said, episode 42, going back a little ways. Uh, these other things are kind of just more like Mac community news uh, from people that we know or that we've talked about in the past. So the first one is, I don't know how long ago this was, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we talked about a Kickstarter for notepads that had the classic macOS cancel and save buttons on them. And uh, I'm like down to my last few of <laughs> sheets on this notepad here. So it's clearly been a while. Uh, and that was a successful Kickstarter. And it was a cool little project by Harold Geisler. And he has another Kickstarter now that launched and has been successfully funded since last time that we recorded. And it's for a related project, which is cancel and OK button sticky notes. So same idea, a little bit smaller. Uh and those are available. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's, it's so I think, you know, for people who have concerns about Kickstarter projects, have no fear for this one. The last one went through with absolutely no problems, got things on time and in wonderful little packaging from Harold. Uh, this one is well over its funding goal already, but he put a long window on it. So as we're recording, it's got 41 days to go. You should have at least a month to get in there if you want some of these cool little sticky notes. And it really is just like a pre-order at this point. This is a uh, 
reliable and already funded Kickstarter. I didn't get in on the Save Cancel Kickstarter, the original one, but I was happy to pledge for this one, and I look forward to having these sticky notes around. One other piece of news from the community is a new project by Jonathan Zufi, who did the iconic book and came on the show way back in our early days and talked to us about it. And this is taking the form of, I guess, just mostly a Twitter account, which is at AppleGlyphAday. And I, I presume that the inspiration was that Jonathan had all of these photos of Mac and Apple hardware, and he had noticed all of the little iconography that goes on on the hardware itself. I think when we think of Apple icons, we think of the software icons. But if you pay close attention, all of, say, the ports on your computer uh, will have little icons next to them to tell you what what their purpose is. And there was a lot of variation with these, and there were things, um, you know, go back to early Apple hardware with modem ports and printer ports and SCSI ports and all kinds of things. And these icons changed over time, and apparently he's collected hundreds of them. And they're not just posting photos of them, but doing sort of vectorized line images of them and posting, as the account says, one a day. Uh, and he's trying to get people to, you know, have a conversation around these, try to identify them. So, you know, some of them are obvious. You're like, oh, yeah, that's that's ADB. And some of them are kind of mysterious things that probably require some explanation because they're on an older or a more obscure product and were maybe a less used port. Uh, some of the, like the video port things were were super weird for a while supporting all kinds of uh, different formats. So it's a neat little thing to add to your uh, classic Mac Twitter following. But now onto the main topic of this episode, airport. And again, this is something that happened in the last time since we recorded. A couple years ago, I think it came out that Apple was no longer actively uh, like putting new R&D into its hardware airport router line. But the official confirmation that they are no longer developing and no longer manufacturing the current models of airport routers came out in late April 2018. So we decided to, for this episode, take a look back at the airport product line, mostly hardware, but also a little software. Right. And I think that the timescales were what got us interested in this. I think timescales even played a part in the contemporaneous coverage of this as a news story where people were going wait, didn't they already do that? And then people said, well, that that was the report that they were just not developing new products. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was that was recently, right? And it's like, no, that was almost two years ago. <laughs> and you realize that since you know nothing has happened in that time span. And it turns out that the overall life of airport is kind of, it's much longer than we think. Um, you know, there are some other anniversaries that are going on. Um, as we're recording this, just a week ago was the uh, was the twentieth anniversary of the iMac announcement, and we'll be getting to that uh, later this year. I think we've ha- established the pattern of doing our anniversaries on product release days as opposed to product announcement days, so that'll be coming up in August. Uh, and to think, okay, well, that was twenty years ago, and just the arc of Apple products that has happened since then is is huge, and then. You look at it and you go, well, that was in 1998, 20 years ago, and Airport was in 1999, just one year later. So it had an 18 and a half year span, which is 
really quite a lot for any Apple product line. I mean, even with something like the iMac, just the amount of transformation that has gone on in that platform. I mean, yes, there's been probably, what, close to 15 years of continuity of the overall form factor in like the, you know, all-in-one LCD, make it thinner and thinner laptop parts on a stick. Back to the G5. Yeah, back to the G5. But if you think of you know, what came out in the very beginning and, you know, the gumdrop uh, all-in-one CRT IMAX, they have nothing to do with this product 20 years later. So what did Airport look like nearly 20 years ago at its inception? And to start off with that, I think one of the things that is important is to think of, you know, Airport is, in one respect, just Apple's implementation of the Wi-Fi standard. And so it's good to have some context as to how that standard interacted with Apple's rollout of it. And in some ways, I think it's fair to say Apple's popularization of it. Uh, you know, similar technologies around that time are things like USB. You know, it existed and then the iMac popularized it in many ways. Um, not that PC manufacturers and peripheral manufacturers weren't also contributing to it. And the same for airport, not that other networking companies weren't contributing to it, but uh, Apple made it mainstream in some, in some interesting ways. But the, the original you know, wireless networking technologies that eventually became Wi-Fi go all the way back to 1985. So basically, as long as the Mac has existed, practically, uh, but those were never really commercialized. They were effectively, I mean, there was some documentation that uh, linked them to the 802.11 standard later on, but was, you know, it was really just research type products um, or internal products that were never put out for consumer use. But the standard that we know now, 802.11, I mean, that is, that's just its... Um, you know, it's the IEEE code for it, and and I don't even know why. How do you get this number right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what incrementing of numbers led to eight hundred two point eleven. But there you are. It's probably where we are with like Chrome right now. Is Chrome is at eight hundred two point eleven? But the first eight hundred two point eleven standard was ratified in nineteen ninety seven. So a couple years before Airport came on the scene, but it was pretty lousy. I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons Apple didn't push it immediately was that the first standard only worked at like one or two megabits per second, which was slow even for the wireless or even for the networking applications at that time. But then a couple years later are the standards that we know, 802.11a and b. And actually b was the one that caught on most quickly, which is a little bit strange, right? Why why did b come first? Uh, you might have not even heard of A. And the reason was that these were two separate standards that were basically put forward at the same time. And because when you're doing wireless networking, you're doing effectively short distance radio broadcasts. And pretty much anywhere in the world, radio broadcasting using radio frequencies of any sort is government controlled so that people aren't just always stepping on each other or, you know, that someone isn't blasting a whole bunch of radio frequency that shuts off your Wi-Fi effectively now. Um, and what happened was A got caught up in a bunch of regulatory issues, especially in Europe. It didn't get approved for, for a few years 
but B was approved more or less worldwide quickly because it was in a part of the radio spectrum that everyone agreed. Like, yeah, you can do low-power transmissions that'll go a couple hundred feet, and you won't be bothering anyone effectively. So 802.11b caught on fairly quickly. That was ratified in September of 1999, which we'll see 1999 crops up a lot in our timeline here. Uh, also in 1999 was this group called the Wi-Fi Alliance was formed. And this was the first time that the term Wi-Fi was actually used. So the whole standard was developed just under the sort of code number the or the standard number. And then these group of companies that wanted to make it more of a commercial product, wanted it to have a brand name of sorts, came together and came up with the term Wi-Fi, which interestingly does not stand for anything. Um, you know, if anyone asks you what does Wi-Fi stand for, it doesn't stand for anything, but it is a sort of like pun or a blend of the words hi-fi, like high fidelity, that's what that stands for, and wireless, because obviously it's wireless networking. And so that's how we got the term. Later on, you know, there have been new additions to the Wi-Fi standard, and we'll we'll sort of catch up with Apple's use of these as we go through the products in just a minute here, but some big milestones just to give you a lay of the land. Uh, 2003 was the first next big update, which was uh, 802.11g, which went up to 54 megabits per second, which was a big jump. Uh, In 2009, finally, 802.11n was ratified, but there were years and years leading up to that of all of these routers and things that were draft n because it hadn't been approved, but they met the draft standard. And so there was a lot of incompatibility in that time, where there were products that weren't quite according to the same standard. There was not just one Wi-Fi. 2013 is the latest uh, big update that is really in use now, which is called uh, 802.11ac, which gets us to even higher speeds up over a gigabit per second in many cases. And now there are a whole bunch of other A and then another letter standards that are in various uh, stages. There's one called AD, which tried to have the uh, the like brand name YGIG, which I've never heard of. Uh, but I think that AD is one of the low power things that is used. I, I think Apple products are compatible with it now. I think it's one of the things that's used in like continuity and handoff where you establish like a quick little on-the-side Wi-Fi network that has to be uh, lower power. Uh, so that's what that's used for. And AH, which is, <laughs> which they want somebody, somebody, some sort of industry consortium wants you to call this HALO. <laughs> it's spelled capital H-A, capital L-O-W, HALO, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is also a low-power variant, hence low and there are unapproved uh, versions coming up in the future, maybe AJAXAY. Uh, one of these is uh, allegedly going to have 20 gigabit per second speeds at short range. So maybe those uh, Apple VR goggles, totally wireless, aren't too far off after all. Um, we'll see. Now, now we're all the way into the future. Um, but the standard has evolved over the past uh, 20 years, I mean, 40 years, but really the last 20 of those being of any significance. 
But now let's go back to the beginning. Remember that the standard was ratified in September of 1999, and we're going to start a few months before that. The grand introduction of Apple's take on wireless networking, Airport, was introduced at Macworld New York 1999, and that was summer, July 1999. And uh, Airport as a protocol, as a feature, as software and hardware, wasn't the the original focus of the segment of the keynote. It was the iBook, this completed Steve Jobs's two-by-two product grid uh, laptop and desktop on one axis, consumer and professional on the other. And the consumer laptop was the final product that Apple needed to make in Steve's return. This was it, the iBook, the iMac to go. And, you know, it, it was a landmark machine for many reasons. The, the product segment being one of them, the uh, translucent design in turquoise and uh, tangerine being another. But it had a handle. It had a handle. It was rubberized. But looking back, it's clear that the, the, the major wow moment is that not only was this a laptop that you could operate on battery and didn't need to be plugged into the wall for power, but this was also a laptop that could access the internet wirelessly. And this was actually the one more thing in the keynote. <laughs> the one more thing goes on for a long time. It's like a 20 minute one more thing. I picked two moments and I think there's a very clear top moment of demonstrating what does wireless internet bring you. Um, but one of them is uh, is kind of a Steve Jobs iPhone, are you getting it moment where he uh, is walking around and there's the cameraman following him with a, a live view of him and he's using uh, whatever browser. I think Internet Explorer probably, like IE4. Good God, on a classic Mac OS to access some websites. And he's walking around with the iBook and you can see people start to go, whoa, the uh, wireless internet. And just to drive that point home, Steve gets out a hula hoop to, to like kind of wave around the iBook in his hand. to Nothing up my sleeve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No wires coming out of me. But that wasn't enough, apparently. They needed to even further show uh, just how untethered the machine was. Uh, so they bring Phil Schiller not out on stage, but like... <laughs> He, he he appears hovering in the corner of the stage, at least in the sort of low-quality video that remains of this on YouTube, which, of course, we will link to. Um, and he's up there with a spotlight on this, like, 25-foot-tall platform, I would say, basically as, as big as they could fit in there. And there's, like, a mattress below him. <laughs> and he's got a he's got a Tangerine iBook, and... They say, you know, we're, they did something where they hooked up an accelerometer to it that was like streaming live data over the Wi-Fi connection, airport connection, something like that, some gimmick. And the notion was that they were going to, you know, hurdle the machine through space, which even more than the, you know, hula hoops, magicians can have, you know, trick rings. But like, if, if the thing actually flies through space, then everyone will believe that uh, we didn't attach a... 200 foot ethernet cable to it. So Schiller says, Oh, I'll just, I'll just throw it down. And, uh, and Steve, I mean, this is of course, you know, all, all part of the shtick Goes, I, I thought maybe you would jump. And they have some back and forth. And then eventually, uh, Phil Schiller like hugs the iBook to himself and does, you know, like a little, uh, a little like jump and land, um, off of this large platform. And, 
uh, Steve has like the whole crap because it's Macworld, remember? So this is not this is not a like press only event. This is not a developer's keynote. This is the Macworld, like the public is here keynote. And Steve has them count down and then like three, two, one, and then he jumps and everybody cheers because there's this live readout of uh of the data over over airport. Ready? Three, two. It's not quite the, you know, like Google thing where they had the guy skydive. Google Glass? Is that what that was for? I think that was, but like, it's kind of on a par many years earlier. And I think uh, was better, like self-contained. Like people complained about the skydiving gimmick taking too long. This was pretty short and got raucous cheers in the Macworld keynote auditorium. So that was the introduction of Airport as a feature. But uh, there's a lot more to it. There's the software that at the time was classic Mac OS and uh, the protocol, of course, the implementation and the hardware. So let's get into what was the first incarnation of airport actually like? Right. So one of the interesting things is that we talked about the, the standards board and, and all of that and how, what was Apple's piece? So one of the interesting things is Apple was not a founding member of the Wi-Fi Alliance they are uh, they are a member now, um, and they're like a, a lead key member now, obviously. Um, but they were not part of it, so they actually partnered with one of the networking companies that was in in the alliance, which was Lucent. And this was mentioned heavily in the early marketing materials and the initial website for Airport, which we'll put a way back link in the show notes, and. So they were the ones who were making sure that the networking hardware was in line with the draft and then with the final uh the final specification and they had the tech chops to do so one of the things that Lucent had developed I think we've maybe mentioned this on a previous episode when we were talking about like early networking protocols is they did this thing called WaveLAN which was also another way of doing wireless networking, you know, as, as it implies, like radio waves and local network. So that's uh, how the actual hardware got developed uh, at the sort of chip or like chipset level. Um, and then Apple put that into two products, which we'll get to in just a minute. In terms of actually controlling airport on your Mac, remember this was pre-OS 10, so their software features were built into classic Mac OS, including some of the things like the control strip. There was a control strip module for turning on and off airport or selecting the appropriate network, similar to what you would imagine in the OS X or Mac OS menu bar now, but um, obviously with a very different aesthetic um, and also with a very different aesthetic about a year or so later in the very early days of OS X, they didn't have menu bar apps. Uh, and we talked about this on the control strip episode, which was episode 37. And instead, they tried to cram a lot of that functionality into the dock. But as the dock is still today, you can have like very small icons in the dock or very large icons in the dock. And so they had this one that was the um, airport one, and it was a like photorealistic picture of an airport base station with then the little icon that we're familiar with now of the like sort of semicircle or quarter circle arc waves 
showing the signal strength. This one is interesting, though. It had five. Now we're down to three, I think. It's interesting to show, or interesting to see how this was an integral part of the operating system. It had to be. Like, your internet connectivity had to be part of, like, that's critical to using a computer in 1999, 2000. But they didn't really quite know where to put it yet. So now let's go on to the hardware itself. Even though Airport was introduced alongside the iBook and kind of the one more thing that that punctuated the iBook, it wasn't built in to the iBook. Like we look now at whenever Apple releases a, a new piece of hardware that has Wi-Fi connectivity, the team at iFixit will tear it open and find a single chip soldered onto the logic board that manages wireless connectivity and maybe some radio antennas. But at its introduction, and at least for one revision afterward, the to get airport in your Mac, you had to have an optional card installed. It's like maybe um, like four or five credit cards stacked on top of each other, roughly. So a sizable piece of hardware that had to be installed into your computer. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Brian. We now think of not only just Wi-Fi being everywhere in the air in the sense that the networks are there, but just that like the hardware for connecting to those Wi-Fi networks is like the size of your thumbnail. You know, someone's like, someone's like, oh, uh, turns out those potato chips you bought at the store, like somebody put a Wi-Fi chip in the bag and it's like creating a botnet in your home (laughs) because it like weighs nothing, right? Like, um, whereas here we're talking about, yeah, like a couple ounces, solid piece of hardware, like would, you know, if, if you were like, discerning you might be able you know if you had one ibook with a card installed and one without like and you held them at the same time you might be able to tell because it's probably a couple ounce difference and uh for the original ibooks this would be installed underneath the keyboard and i think even for the rest of the ibook line you could uh install the optional airport card underneath the keyboard yeah there's this great animated gif that was on the original airport website that shows you the like three steps for popping in your airport card um which is something that apple would just like never ever put on uh, a product page today it's like we'll just pop your keyboard off and then move the ribbon cables around and then plug it in over here and you're done and it is it's like a three frame gif because it was a three step no tools required installation which I think was a really great selling point for it because, um, you know, it was going to be a $99 upsell. And it makes sense that they made it modular because if they put it in every iBook, the price of every iBook was going to go up $99 to keep their margins. But because airport was so new, Wi-Fi was technically not existent yet. Or, you, you know, even in the year or two afterwards, Wi-Fi was so new the number of people who were buying an iBook and even had a wireless network to connect to set up either in their home or at work um, and even at you know colleges and universities, I mean, three, four years after this, we were in college and there were many places on campus that, you know, it was like, bring your Ethernet cord. Um, so to give consumers the choice and to not make them pay you know, further up the scale and to make the iBook more of that consumer rather than professional laptop, it was really, I think, a wise choice to leave it out. I mean, and the iBook had Ethernet, as you said, and I think even a built-in 56K modem because that was still a viable option 
for connecting to the internet in 1999, as you said, before the, the standard was ratified. But like Ed said, uh, even if you bought a fully loaded iBook, you got your airport card, there was a good chance there weren't very many Wi-Fi networks around for you to connect to once you had it and you had it set up. So Apple also provided an airport base station. The the routers that we probably all have a some version of in our home right now, um, so you could create your own. And it was shaped like the kind of rounded pyramid UFO that uh, we that Ed said was the the docklet OS ten icon. And uh, I think the this product shape was certainly iconic. It was another example of of products having whimsy and a sense of character in this time of the colorful IMAX and the colorful iBooks and the blue and white G3 tower. Uh, we have, <laughs> there's a note here in our show notes. Apple didn't hide the fact that this base station was shaped like a flying saucer. They didn't because one of the first TV, I think the first TV commercial for the product was just <laughs> the, the base station floating ominously down from the top of the screen with like spooky ufo music like here here come the aliens <laughs> that's the entire 30 seconds of the ad there is no voiceover and at the end it just says apple.com slash wireless like figure it out <laughs> i guess that it it worked to the levels that they that they hoped for for getting adoption but it was clearly uh, you know, it it was a steep uh, it was a steep curve because, like you said, the base station was sold for two hundred ninety nine dollars, which in twenty eighteen dollars is four hundred fifty dollars, which is extremely expensive for setting up a Wi Fi network. Um, plus the card, so you know you're talking, you're talking four hundred dollars to get into the system then plus the inflation i don't know if this sweetens the deal any but the base station itself had its own 56k modem built in <laughs> which is you know it's not nothing but <laughs> it's it's close to nothing well i don't know i think i think that at the time if you were not in the market for higher speed internet or you were in a market that did not have higher speed internet that was actually that would actually be huge because if you could get the base station to connect to your ISP, then you could use more than one device. Like I, I don't even think that people would be would set up a modem and then hook that into like an Ethernet switch and share that locally. Like that's that's kind of ridiculous. Um, so it gave that option of not being like, hey, get off the computer. I need the internet just to send an email. Um, 56k is not a whole lot of bandwidth, but if the only thing you're doing is text chat and email, uh, more than one person could use that at a time. And that could be really used. That could, that could eliminate a lot of family strife, maybe $300 worth. <laughs> the airport base station, uh, of, of this original generation got one revision B that added a second ethernet port. So maybe if you did have a high speed connection coming into a separate modem, that you fed into your airport with Ethernet, you could then share that connection back out of the airport, uh, which, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of people who could uh, take use of that. But one note when I was looking through the specs of this Revision B model was that it also, the base station contained 
a fully functional airport card, which could be removed and inserted into a compatible Mac. And to me, that's, you know, that's a hundred dollars of value right there. So we've mentioned that airport was designed at first exclusively for the iBook, uh, but it did come to desktop Macs pretty soon thereafter. And I think that people thought that it was silly at first. Like, why would you need wireless networking on a machine that doesn't move? But as we know now, um, except for like really, you know, really specific cases where you need rock solid bandwidth, uh, it's way more convenient. It's one less thing that you have to wire and plug in. Um, so the first desktop Mac that supported airport in any way, shape or form was, uh, in fact, the iMac G3, but not the first couple models. Uh, if you remember, the very first iMac G3 had the mezzanine slot, which was used for nothing, and you were not supposed to plug things into it, although there were a couple of third-party uh, devices that could be plugged into it and more or less worked to add some functionality to those iMacs. Uh, the the next couple revisions, like the B and C revisions of the original iMac G3, just scrapped the mezzanine port. Like that wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place. And then, kind of in its stead, with the slot loading model that was added in late '99, it got a place to plug in an airport card, basically in that same area in the back. Uh, once you took off the uh, sort of handle slash cover in that area of the iMac hardware. But because of the way that, uh, I guess that with the CRT and everything else involved and the you know, full complement of ports and things that were going on in the iMac, there was not really enough space, almost paradoxically less space than in the iBook. Um, or maybe it was just lower priority where it was higher priority in the design of the iBook. There wasn't really enough space to directly plug in an airport card. So to get one in, you needed to also get a special adapter that basically the the airport cards, I think, plugged in on the short side of the rectangle. But to fit it into the iMac case, you basically needed it to plug in on the long side of the rectangle. And so it sort of adapted all of the wiring in sort of a 90 degree bend around so that it fit into this slot in the back of the iMac. And we'll link to a K-Base article that shows exactly what this looks like. And this K-Base, K-Base gonna K-Base. <laughs> this, this has some really good, uh, you know, late 90s uh, com- do-it-yourself-at-home computer uh, installation instructions. So there's things about, you know, discharging your static electricity. And then it says, quote, don't walk around the room until you've finished installing the airport card. And then there's some stuff uh, for later on. There was when they introduced the like lowest level, cheapest iMac that was, I think, at the $7.99 price point and only came in Indigo uh, to you know cut costs there. This slot was not even present. So there was no option to install Airport on that later machine because it was bottom of the line. And they identify it as the... Um, as the iMac Summer 2000. And then there's a note here. I don't know if they've ever uh, done summer and winter and seasonal. It's usually like early, mid, and late now. Um, but it says, the parenthetical product description, Summer 2000, refers to summer of the Northern Hemisphere. 
<laughs> for Apple's customers down under. So it was a little bit of uh, an ordeal, I guess, to get airport support on one of those iMac G3s. But then when they redesigned the entire line for the iMac G4, it was designed so that you could directly plug in the airport card without an adapter. In fact, it was very easy. It was one of those things where you, you turn it over on the bottom, you undo a couple screws, the bottom plate pops off, and you've got your airport card and your RAM slots right there, and you could put one in. Also around this time, uh, in I think it was in OS ten specifically at this point, there was software support for turning Instead of buying an airport base station, if you had a desktop Mac that wasn't going anywhere, you could create a software base station and use the card. And so I think this was pretty important as well, because as Wi-Fi technology, the Wi-Fi B and you know, Wi-Fi G is coming around the corner at this point, you know, lots of vendors were getting in and the price of routers were dropping and dropping. And to compete with a sub $100 router, Apple at least had, hey, you can buy an airport card for 99 bucks, put it in your iMac G4, and then your range is not going to be as good because it's not designed with specific antennas. Um, it is, you know, that it was more designed as a, uh, as a receiver than a broad, wide range broadcaster. But if you're in a small apartment or a small enough house, then it could work. And in fact, my family did that for a number of years with, with an iMac G4. Like I think it was as long as we were running our iMac G4, we did the software base station and it worked just fine. I mean, it didn't reach like the furthest corner of the house, but it was totally sufficient for most of our needs because most of the places that we'd be using any of our Mac laptops were you know, one or two rooms away from where the iMac was. And then later on, we moved on to, to later iMacs, uh, and we got iOS devices in the house, and we were using them in all corners of the house, and, uh, you know, eventually uh, an Eero system was necessary. <laughs> Let's jump ahead a couple years to the next big jump in the Wi-Fi standard, as I'd mentioned, 802.11G, and Apple updated their airport line to match. And kind of in keeping with the Apple of this era, this is uh, Macworld SF 2003, so January 2003, they rebranded it Airport Extreme to mark the, uh, the, like, the five times faster speeds you could theoretically get with 802.11g. It might be one of Apple's worst product names. It's certainly Apple's most early 2000s product name. It's, you know, it's the Pepsi Max of 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 Apple products. <laughs> the the name uh, protests too much. Um it's extreme, but I think that as ridiculous as the the name may be, the the intention there is good, which is that the Wi-Fi space is starting to get complicated at this point. There are multiple standards. They have code letters. Apple does not want you to have to choose a product based on 802.11b versus 802.11g. They want 99.9% .9 of their customers to never have to think about the IEEE Wi-Fi standards. And so they wanted something in the name that indicated that it was 
significantly better, therefore extreme. And and that's what they went with. I think that, you know, from from the the Apple philosophy point of view, it makes sense. Maybe maybe there was another uh another name written on a whiteboard somewhere else that um might have been a better choice in, in retrospect, but it worked for the time. The change to Airport Extreme brought changes to both pieces of their hardware plan. Uh, the the cards were completely redesigned. I think they shrunk to about half the size. They were still $99, though, and still optional in a lot of the models that could take them. Uh, this was January 2003, so they were... So Airport Extreme was announced alongside the new aluminum PowerBook G4s, the Monster 17-inch and the Tiny 12-inch. Um, and so these were obviously Airport Extreme-capable <laughs> machines. And uh, I remember the 12-inch PowerBook G4 first revision is the machine I took to college. And I remember uh, making sure that the $99 option for Airport Extreme uh, compatibility was put in there and didn't end up using it for like two years because... Wi-Fi networks were scarce around campus. Although I will say at this point, um, this Airport Extreme 802.11G was the last time it would be these optional cards, not optional, but uh, cards that the the user, the end user could install or remove at any time. And I think sometime around the Intel transition is when uh, hardware Wi-Fi capability starts to just become a chip on the logic board. Right, it became standard because Wi-Fi became ubiquitous and everybody expected it. Um, and it, it reaches that tipping point where it it no longer looks like, oh, I'm not buying a feature that I don't need. It's like, oh, I'm being gouged $100 for a feature that of course you know I need. The UFO base station was also upgraded to support uh, 802.11G. Um, I don't know if we mentioned, but the original UFO base station was kind of a, a a light gray, and I think it had a clear layer over the actual gray material, kind of like uh, the early model iPods had their white face, but a, a layer of clear acrylic over it, or the, the Zoom double shot <laughs> molding process. Um, and the Airport Extreme base station went to a solid white. This is, you know, the time of the the white iMac G4 and uh, and Apple's kind of streamlining their their product coloring to the kind of bleak current state of aluminum and glass. I think that it's important to note that the original base station is kind of a color that no other Apple product ever was, um, especially with the court. It wasn't even really a graphite Apple logo. It was a little more bluish green. Um, it was kind of sitting halfway in between original iMac coloration and uh, Power Mac G4 coloration, but the plastic process kind of looked like a, like a Power Mac G4. But you're right, at this point, things were moving to uh, white plastic and aluminum across pretty much all of the product lines. So the, the airport was also moving in the, the clean white direction. Some other revisions to the space station included, uh, there were two models now. You could get one with the 56K modem or one without, save you a little money for something you might not ever use. Right. By 2003, people were hopefully trying to get rid of their 56K modems. Uh, the base station added a USB port so that you could start printing 
over a wireless connection. And most interestingly to me, they added ports where you could buy a third-party external antenna to help boost the signal. And um, I never knew anyone who did this, but I remember thinking, like, why wouldn't you? Um, especially if if you were in a house, as uh, I was at the time of this announcement, and not like something that you want to put in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment or a dorm room. Uh, if you want to buy just one base station and have it reach all the corners of your house, uh, this is a great way where you can buy an antenna that may have been, I don't know, $50 to $100 instead of buying another $300 base station and trying to do all the different ways of uh, boosting signals. Oh, bridge mode and all, all, all those mess. Yes, that awful mess, which we'll get to in just a little bit. <laughs> Actually, because I, I think that, that the bridge mode started to become possible in this generation of airport. And my family tried it, and it was just a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, let's go on to a product that w- had that almost more in mind, which was the next year, the introduction of the Airport Express. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting products in the airport lineup. So it was announced in June of 2004. They're still in the Wi-Fi G uh, era, and it cost $129, so cheaper than a base station, more expensive than a card, as those were being phased out. But the form factor was super interesting, and something that, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh, wireless networking companies are trying to have some of this still today. It's the device that you just plug into the wall, and it just sits there as a big wall wart. Um, and in fact, the form factor, well, you know, you can easily look up pictures. We'll put some links as well, but it looks almost exactly the size and shape of the like, you know, big boy MacBook Pro uh, adapter, like power adapter now that you have the 85 watt one that's like got a slightly bigger box. Um, it may be like a little bit bigger than that. It's a rectangle as opposed to a square. But packed into this very small package is the Wi-Fi hardware and also several useful ports. So there's an Ethernet port for a nearby wired device, a USB port, again, for printing, and also an audio mini jack that you could plug into a pair of speakers. And this was for a new software feature, which at the time was called AirTunes and later came to be known as AirPlay. So you could plug in speakers across the room or even across the house and find those in iTunes and it would stream the music over your Wi-Fi network and play it out the speakers, uh, all handled by the airport hardware. And all for all that the speakers knew, they were just getting audio signal. One thing about this that that remained interesting to me is that this was a pretty cool feature, I think everyone would agree, and it was only ever available on the Express, uh, never on the higher class, uh, more expensive base stations. And that makes sense for some reasons, like uh, you want something small that you can, you know, maybe put behind your speakers or your sound system. But if maybe you have your big stereo receiver in the same entertainment center as, you know, maybe where the cable jack is for your cable modem that you want to feed into your wireless network. Why wouldn't the main base station, the the larger airport express uh, or larger airport extreme be there as well? 
that could not do uh, Airtunes audio out on its own. And so I think many people bought a bunch of Airport Expresses without the intention of them operating as like Wi-Fi routers that serve Wi-Fi internet worldwide web traffic to your laptops, but just as like wireless audio receivers. Yeah, local network only devices. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about AirTunes and AirPlay is that this is the point where Apple is starting to put on to add features to the airport ecosystem that are not part of the standard, where they're going a level beyond. And I think that at least my view of airport in the beginning, and maybe some other people's as well, is one of these things where people have just lumped it into that category of, well, there was a standard and a whole bunch of people did it, and then Apple swooped in and did it better um, or made a more premium product. But that's not the case at all. As we saw, like airport was out before the standard was out. They were there from the beginning. But by the time you get to 2004, it's become commodified. And they need to differentiate themselves if anybody is going to buy airport products as opposed to $30 Linksys routers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, like just out of a off the shelf at Best Buy or whatever. And the way to do that is to have not just, you know, premium plastics and premium look, but premium features. And Airtunes was one of those because you you needed an airport express to be able to do that wireless playback. You you could not even if there was another router on the market that had an audio out on it, you could not have that be on your home network or have that be your base station and say, hey, iTunes, play over to that device. Uh only until maybe later on when um you know, people are still struggling with, you know, as long as AirPlay 1 still exists, um, you know, people still do things to work around the limitations of this closed additional standard on top of the Wi-Fi standard um, with products, you know, like software products for the Mac that let you do things like broadcast to devices that might not otherwise appear in, in AirPlay. So it's interesting that this is maybe where airport starts to actually separate just from vanilla Wi-Fi. And your point about, I want to broadcast from iTunes specifically to my speakers is a relevant point given that this came out in 2004, which is either the start or the middle of peak. Apple is the iPod company and the iTunes company, not necessarily the Mac company, but when you think of digital music and where you get it and how you play it and how you consume it, that was the Apple's main uh, uh, product reach to consumers. Well, and your, your Mac is your digital hub. So you, you broadcast your music around your house with Airport Express, and then you put it on your iPod to go out. And Ed, as you introduced this product, uh, it kind of had many, it had many things in mind. Uh, we just talked about AirTunes, but another one was not necessarily being your main Wi-Fi router, but an extension of your Wi-Fi network. And my family had uh, the Airport Extreme uh, 802.11G UFO base station, and it would uh, cover with relative strength the entire first floor of the house. But uh, as I came home from college and I had a laptop and my younger brother got a laptop. 
uh, some of us started using computers on the second floor where the Wi-Fi signal would not reach. And this seemed like uh, the perfect product for us. It wasn't as expensive as getting a second uh, full-fledged router. And it, you know, it pledged to, in the, the Apple, it just works way, <laughs> extend our existing network. But we went through such trouble... <laughs> And it never worked. It's not magic. Like signal degradation is is signal degradation, you know. And if you're if you're putting the repeater in a place where it's not even getting a very good signal, it you know it's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And and at that point, your 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 computer basically still sees no good Wi-Fi. And I remember it was trying to do so over WDS. The airport utility made a a big mention of WDS, and this stands for Wireless Distribution System. It's not quite mesh networking, as uh, we're very fortunate to have today. Um, But the funny thing about WDS is you you had to tell each base station what, what role it was playing in the entire thing. You know, these aren't intelligent things that can talk to each other. And there are three things you could be. You could be the main base station that has whatever incoming... Uh, internet signal, be it your uh, Ethernet with, from a cable modem or, heaven forbid, a 56K modem. <laughs> Probably DSL at that point. Um, there were relay stations that could receive a signal from the, the main station and also broadcast that even further out. And then there were remote base stations, which could only receive one and then just kind of like broadcast it out to devices rather than trying to push it to a, a further base station. And boy, we tried both. Well, I guess it's only two, but we set the airport extreme as the main. And then we said, okay, the airport express is just the relay, you know, it's, or the remote rather, it's just the remote. It's not going to try and connect to a farther off base station. It just wants to get Wi-Fi on the second floor. That didn't work. So I said, okay, maybe, maybe it's a relay. Maybe, you know, that'll tell it to have a stronger signal for us to talk to another base station. That also didn't work. It's basically what you said, but it's only receiving you know, a half strength signal by the time that the Wi-Fi reaches the second floor. And then it's trying to push that out at full strength to devices on the second floor. You're not really getting a lot. After this point, we're into what I think would be termed the current broad generation of airport products. And so we'll we'll touch on them a little bit lightly. Um, you're you may be familiar with them. You may still have one in your home. You may be uh, lamenting its forthcoming death um, and and lack of replacement. Um, but these products carried on the same nomenclature, even as the underlying technology changed. So uh, even as we got to later specifications of N and AC Wi-Fi, uh, these products were still called Airport Extreme. Good, good job, Apple, not trying to uh, try to come up with a name that was even more extreme than extreme. Double extreme. <laughs> Airport infinity. <laughs> um, they did not. But they did totally change the form factor. And in interesting ways, you know, the Airport Express showed how much they could miniaturize some of the vital airport hardware. But the next Airport Extreme got bigger in many ways. So the it, it's shorter now, but the footprint change to be larger. Um, it's a square, um, as, as we have in our outline here. Now it's a Mac mini. This was, this was at the point in, I mean, you could have three devices that were Mac minis that were all different things at this point. Cause you could have a Mac mini and you could have an Apple TV 
and you could have an Airport Extreme router, and they would all pretty much look the same. Isn't this how uh, Stephen Hackett props up his iMac, I think, on a stack of these all similarly shaped and sized devices? I don't know which ones uh, are in the stack, but there are, there are a few of them, yeah. <laughs> so th- this one is interesting just in the way that it was announced, um, and also foreshadows the lack of importance of airport hardware uh, compared to some other things. So this was ready at the same time as the Macworld San Francisco 2007 keynote, which had uh, more important things to deal with, namely the iPhone. Um, And so it was not covered in the keynote for probably good reasons. But apparently... Instead of now, we're used to that maybe a couple weeks before or a couple weeks after a keynote, a lesser product will just be announced via press release and, and put on the Apple store. Maybe they didn't want to take down the store a second time. I don't know. Um, but this was actually announced during the keynote via press release. And I have to think that maybe this is the incident that uh, sometimes Jason Snell refers to when, uh, when he and Mike are doing a keynote recap on upgrade and they record it you know as soon as he's he's done in person uh viewing the event and he puts up this like big disclaimer at the beginning of their segment they're saying like we're recording this right afterwards so anything that has been like quietly put on a website somewhere we don't know about like i was there watching the presentation we were watching the video of the presentation we don't know what else has happened and i always think that that's like like a fairly big disclaimer, like, yeah, maybe you'll miss like one technical spec here or there about the products that were discussed. But no, apparently there is precedent, minor precedent, but there is precedent for an entire like revamp of a product, but effectively a brand new product in an existing line being pushed out uh, while you were being uh, wowed by uh, the grand reveal of the original iPhone. <laughs> yeah, to that point, the press release, which is still on apple.com, uh, has Macworld San Francisco 2007 as like the the time and place where it was released, not just like Cupertino 2007. So the hardware itself at this point, I feel like, like I said, it's getting less and less interesting. Uh, the feature set is all spec'd out. The thing that you want the most in a Wi-Fi router now is speed, strength, like you know, what else can you do? Well, Apple did have one more important feature that then they were able to add to this new larger form factor of the Airport Extreme base station was that without modifying the external case, they now had enough room to put a whole hard drive in there, which led to the time capsule line of devices that went with the time machine feature in OS X. I think that my guess would be that Apple had internal metrics on how many people were using Time Machine after it was first introduced, and they were not very good because people do not like to go to the trouble to plug in backup drives to their devices. And so, especially if you have a laptop, it just doesn't happen all that often. If you have, you know, if you have an iMac setup like I do here, I have a backup drive hanging off the back. It doesn't move, right? Like it will back up every day because I don't have to think about it. It just sits there. But when my primary machine was a MacBook or a MacBook Pro, every time that I wanted to back up, I had to set myself a reminder. Plug in plug in your computer, you know, plug in your backup drive. Otherwise, you could go days or weeks or months with no backup and then 
that does not help you in a crisis. So Time Capsule said, we solve this by making the backup feature part of your home networking solution. So you have a large hard drive in the Time Capsule. I think they came in 500 or gigabyte or one terabyte versions up front, and they were expensive because, remember, this is Apple's premium base station plus what at that point was a very large hard drive because you needed to have room for your incremental time machine backups. Um, I think they were in the five to $600 range. Um, I got the smaller one because I was on a budget, <laughs> but I will say that it gave me incredible peace of mind to know that, uh, that time machine was just doing its thing every time that I was home and using my Mac. Um, sometimes it got to the point, especially once the drive was filling and it had to do a lot of the pruning that uh, Time Machine does, which is super disk I.O. intensive, um, backups would take a long time and they would slow down. And kind of a poor design part on, on, on Apple's part was that when the backup was running, your internet speed would drop dramatically because it was using it was saturating the local bandwidth so much and reducing your latency or increasing your latency uh to the internet connection that you know like this Skype call would would not happen <laughs> yeah. if uh if a backup to time capsule was going on especially that first generation like it would just things would bog down and so then you got to the point where you had to go in and do the little uh, terminal plist hacks to make it back up less frequently, but still maybe you know at least once a day or every few hours instead of every hour, which was the default for Time Machine. I was having hour backup increments, and each backup would take fifty minutes. So my laptop was basically just backing up all the time because it didn't time the hour from when it finished it timed the hour from when it started <laughs> it was like it was it was madness like make it stop but even so you know if you were paying attention to these things and if you did the tweaks um to make the software feature you know it didn't just work but out of the box but you could make it really work in a robust way uh time capsule was a really great product that um you know, I, I never had a catastrophic backup failure from that, but uh, saved my bacon on restoring a couple files and um, worked as my backup when I moved to a new machine and used Migration Assistant. That also took like a day and a half. Oh, for Wi-Fi. Good Lord. No, it plugged in over USB because it had a USB port. Oh, USB. Well, it's still, yeah. <laughs> five years later, well, five years after the first version of these square Mac Mini-esque Airport Extremes, the Airport Express followed. And I remember a lot of people were upset about this because apart from the form factor changing from the wall wart to what was essentially uh, the, the new, almost current generation Apple TV size square, is that it needed a power cable. So you couldn't just plug an Airport Express into the wall you had to set it somewhere. And of course, there could be third-party mounts that tried to integrate a shorter power cable with a, a, a bracket that could fit it onto the wall. But the era of just walking into the Apple store, buying a little box, and set, putting that box into your wall 
and having it operate as Wi-Fi uh, was over. I will admit, I forgot that this product ever existed. We are we are getting to the the writing is on the wall portion of the the airport saga. Also, around this time, a year earlier in 2011, uh, Mac OS X Lion was released, and in every version up until this. Um, the software features were referred to as airport. Even if you, you know, even if the only true airport hardware that you had was the chipset that was built into your Mac and you had a, you know, some, you know, Buffalo Systems cheap router or whatever. <laughs> I think I actually did at one point. Buffalo Systems, I never heard of that. That's great. Something, it was something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you had no other Apple Airport hardware. It was all referred to as Airport. You would open up the Airport menu and you would see all of your neighbors' ridiculously named networks, even though surely they were not using $299 Apple base stations um, in college, you know, right? Um, and so calling the software features Airport was becoming increasingly less accurate in some ways. And also, you mentioned this as we were discussing before we started recording, Brian, that uh, as far as we know, there were never really references to airport in the built-in features in iPhone OS or iOS. It was always connect to a Wi-Fi network. So that terminology got standardized across all of the platforms. So the the menu, the system preference pane, all of those things now referred to your wireless connections, regardless of whether they were coming from Apple hardware or third party, as just Wi-Fi and not airport. And then the final uh, revision, the final new product in the airport line were the final versions of the airport extreme top of the line base station. And uh, like Ed mentioned with the original Square Airport Extreme and the original Time Capsule. They were similar uh, form factors, but I think you could tell, I think iFixit, not me. I think iFixit when they opened up that era Airport Extreme and opened up that era Time Capsule, uh, both had been kind of purposefully designed for their respective purposes. But the only reason I want to mention the final revision of the Airport Extreme base station and the Time Capsule base station is that they were the kind of uh, towers, almost like an extruded Apple TV, um, but white, of course, is that uh, when iFixit opened up both of these, they were essentially the same product. It's just that the Airport Extreme had a perfectly sized empty space where in the time capsule, the 3.5 inch spinning hard disk was. And I remember there was a little bit of an uproar about this too, where uh, in the same way that when the original MacBooks came out and people could figure out that similarly specced white ones and black ones, the black one had a $200, $250 premium, that you could buy an Airport Extreme and with a teeny bit of soldering know-how, you could get your own 3.5-inch spinning hard disk to turn it into a time capsule for way less than you would pay Apple to package it all together themselves. There were so many questions about this product. The iFixit page that we're linking to says, uh, the airport extreme, we're still saying extreme, huh? <laughs> but also just, you know, this teardown and the the form, people thought that the form factor was just weird and ugly to begin with. And then they did the teardown and, and you look at it and you go, I don't know why they did this. It doesn't seem to... It doesn't seem to have any benefit for like radio transmission or anything. You 
think you would think that oh well you would build this you know big tower looking thing if you could say ah well you know by vertically separating the radios we could achieve blah 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 more throughput or you know 50 more feet of range compared to the previous airport extreme but i don't think that there was really any of that um so it was a uh, an odd capstone to the whole the whole arc of the airport product line yeah as you were just saying about the the software naming in macOS the writing might have been on the wall in 2011 when that change happened that uh airport being its own standalone brand almost of Wi-Fi was going away and Apple was just happy to have uh, commodity chips inside your Macs and iPhones and iPads and happy for you to move on to third-party routers. Uh, As we've seen with Eero, I think both Ed and I now have Eero systems uh, where we live. You know, the the simplicity of Eero mesh networking is miles above the garbage bridge mode or WDS that you would have to go through with uh, chaining together a bunch of Apple routers. And so I think, you know, it may be as early as 2011, even though some new things came out after then, they were ready to cede control of the wireless ecosystem to third parties. So we reached the present day and and the airport hardware is no more. But I think that it, it's it's pretty safe to say that the the airport hardware did really go a long way towards driving some new features, um, including AirPlay, which hopefully someday maybe will uh, get updated with AirPlay too. Um, encouraged adoption of the of backup through through Time Machine, and just overall got people to expect that their devices from their desktop all the way down to their phone would have Wi-Fi connectivity. So that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, we have lots of links that you'll be able to find in the show notes to some of the you know, early product marketing uh, and some of the articles and things that we talked about. Uh, that video of, uh, of Phil Schiller jumping off platform is key. You can find those in your right in your podcast player, or you can find them at our website, which is simplebeep.com. If you go to our website, you can also get in touch with us if you have feedback about this show. Or if you have something shorter to say, you can find us on Twitter. Show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. We are also individually on Twitter. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.